rough start, huh? Must have been pretty humiliating. Get out of my room. See, I'm just I'm worried about the next act. I'm just not sure you're feeling up to it. Stop. Please stop. How about I dance the black swan for you? Leave me alone! Hey, Film Files, we're back, you're back, which we think is awesome. Thank you for clicking that play button. We're going to call tonight our Halloween episode, although tonight's film is not traditionally considered a horror film. It's chosen by Anna, and we all agree that it's creepy, it's disturbing, and it's thoroughly uncomfortable to watch, but we all had a blast doing so. Anna? Hello. How's married life? It's pretty good. And Corey, hello. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always love to be here. Well, this is bound to be a weird episode. Today's film, we have heavy amounts of motion capture. We have 3D rendering. We have advanced green screen masking techniques. We have cutting edge CG technology and a couple of really weird controversies. So we're, of course, talking about the 2010 film Black Swan, and it's just as weird as you remember. So stick with us. This is Movie Show Theater. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Sorry, you just tough talk a dead body? Get busy living or get busy dying. Keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. That's goddamn right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Corey, you own P3 Media Works. If somebody wanted to uh, get a hold of you or, or look at what sort of services your company offers, where would be the best place for them to go? Uh, the website. P3MediaWorks.com. The letter P, the number 3, M-E-D-I-A-W-O-R-K-S.com. Excellent. So Natalie Portman in this movie was phenomenal. She obviously won the Academy Award, but she's not the only Academy Award winner that Darren Aronofsky has worked with. So here's some Mickey Rourke trivia for you. So Mickey Rourke, well, first of all, he turned down roles in... 48 Hours, Platoon, Top Gun, Tombstone. He also turned down three roles in Quentin Tarantino movies. But he was famous for walking off the set when a producer refused to let this on set. Mickey Rourke insisted to have this on set, and the producer refused, and he left. What do you think that was? Is it a person or an action? I I think I have an idea, but I... It's a noun. It's a noun. Okay. Okay. Oh, it's a noun. Well, I have an idea that... I think it's a 50-50 chance of being right. Smoking cigarettes. That's a very good guess. Yeah, he's definitely got that smoker's voice and whole aesthetic. Um, he refused to let 
walked off because he refused to let this on set. I'm going to say drinking on set. It was his chihuahua. What? They said no to a dog? What a jerk. So this actress called him the human ashtray. Was it Kim Basinger, Marissa Tomei, or Meryl Streep? I think it was Marissa Tomei. I think it was Kim Basinger because I feel like he was like maybe weaning himself off cigarettes during The Wrestler. It was Kim Basinger. In nine and a half weeks, probably. Good job. All right, this next one is true or false. Darren Aronofsky, despite his critical acclaim, has never actually received a formal film school education. True. Well, I would not be surprised if that were true. A lot of those really great directors don't have an official degree. I would say true. What do you think? I I think it's true. I think he does not have formal training. He does not. Well, he actually has a lot. He attended Harvard, (laughs) and he attended the American Film Institute, and he's a 1983 graduate of the Mark Twain School for the Gifted and Talented. Oh, so he's been a star since he was young, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, it's actually refreshing because there's... It's like almost in vogue now to not go to film school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to know that there still are contemporary um, successful filmmakers out there that... Who that, went through some real learning. Absolutely. Um, because I, even though it's awesome that we live in a day and age where you can become excellent at this craft, Christopher Nolan is a good example of that. David Fincher is a great example of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's still nice to know that... Um, learning the craft is still important. School can be valuable. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I think even those guys that I mentioned just now still immerse themselves in learning the craft. And although it was not formal, it was still in the same vein of going to film school. Yeah, I'm surprised. I I don't know. I guess I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, I guess either way. It seems like the emphasis has been taken off the, the necessity of film school. That whole idea applies across the board. We just live in a day and age where, where kids have access to things, and growing up, they can immerse themselves in in any industry. IT is another one where yeah. you got nineteen year olds that are getting recruited because they just you know they spent their teens immersing themselves in gaming and technology, and they and they applied themselves. So I think you know just that concept of the forums of non formal training that you can go and become good at what you love. Yeah. Um, okay. Two more. Two more? Cool. Two more. Okay. I'm calling this one Double Trouble. All right. These are five movies that all came out in 2010 also that are oh, geez, all over two hours long. But only one of these five films had the highest box office gross and was also had the longest runtime. Inception, Iron Man 2, Sex in the City 2, Twilight Eclipse and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Okay, so repeat the qualifiers again for me. So only one of those five movies has both the longest runtime and the highest box office gross. Mm. So just so I understand the, the question. I always do this. <laughs> yep, no, that's fine. I'm just, I'm just Classic cl- me. I'm just clarifying. So one of these films has both of those claims to fame. Mm-hmm. The longest running time and I would guess Inception highest. only because... Chris Nolan loves his long movies, and I know Sex and the City didn't do that well because it was bad. It was a bad movie. And Harry Potter did pretty well, but it wasn't that long. It wasn't as long as Inception. I can pretty much guarantee it. I've seen that movie an embarrassing number of times. Harry Potter. Oh, yeah? 
Hmm. Don't fake me out. Well, I haven't seen the Harry Potter movie, and so I guess that you gave me like a cheat sheet because I would have guessed <laughs> that the Harry, been your guess. That would have been my first guess because I think most of those films are were kind of long. weren't Most of those films most, like two and a half plus. But most movies are like two and a half plus now. At least when you hear two. part one. It, uh... Well, and because Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows was split into one and two, so I think they were both around the two hour mark. Well, hold on a second. The highest box office gross that year. I would think that Twilight would have the highest gross. So I'm going to go with Twilight. I know that Inception has one of the highest box office grosses for original films, not based, not an adapted screenplay, like of all time. That's been a tribute. It's been Inception and Interstellar. Both Chris Nolan films are super high in like the top 10 list. And I know this because we were masters of bar trivia for a while. So I'm going to stick with my guns and go with Inception. And you're going Twilight? Yeah, I'm gonna go Twilight. I mean, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that Inception made a lot of money, but I still think it's still sort of an acquired audience taste. It's somewhat mainstream, but I don't know Twilight just because right. like all the teens went to go see it. Which Twilight movie was it? Eclipse. Twilight oh, God, Eclipse. That movie was was so that bad. the third one? It was so bad. Asking for a friend. Oh, I've F- seen them. You forget. Twilight. Final answer, Jimmy. The answer was Harry Potter. And no. Exactly how, yeah. Oh, I was so sure. Myself. See now, now if, if you wouldn't have if you wouldn't have like scared <laughs> me off of it, that was my first guess. <laughs> was that strategic? Well, I guess because it was the last. Was it part one? It was part, part one. one. Yeah. Damn. That must have been a long movie. I was two twenty six. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I was I was sort of paying attention to the highest gross part. You know. It had to be yeah. one of those movies where all the kids go see it. Those are the people who go see movies most. But Well, and the last couple Harry Potter movies made a ton of money because they were the last couple. So I just didn't think it was as long as Inception. But never mind. You probably have a good guess until you hear uh, other options and then you start yeah. second guessing yourself. Thanks. It's a good question. Did you design these questions, Jimmy? I do. These are great. I do. I have a good time with these. Sex in the City was one minute shorter than Inception. It's two hours and 25 minutes too long. That movie yeah. is one of the worst movies I've ever there seen. There is a dick in it, though, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a... the one with the dick? No, the penis is in the first one. Mm. How can you write a Sex in the City episode that's two and a half hours long? Um, you just put in a bunch of convoluted bullshit and make it terrible and ruin everything that was even remotely funny about the show to begin with. I loved the show. Don't get me wrong. I really did. And I, I, will, I really liked the show, I will show defend too. it I'll in spite of its problems there. that I can acknowledge as an adult that like, yes, this show had some serious major flaws, but it was very funny and it, whatever. But the movies were not. So I just like to pretend they never happened. That's my answer. I'm trying to see, what's our, uh, you said Kim Basinger. So I think you're in the lead right now. Oh yeah. I haven't gotten anything right. Well, there's still one more. Ooh. This one's called 2010, A Year in Review. And I put a question mark there. I'm going to read four things that happened in 2010. Except that one of these did not happen in 2010. Ooh. It was like three truths and a lie. So which one of these is did not happen? Okay. Correct. Okay. Okay. Obama signs the health care bill. WikiLeaks reveals 75,000 documents online regarding the U.S. and the war in Afghanistan. World-famous dirtbag football coach Jerry Sandusky is sentenced to 15 years in prison for the molestation of probably thousands of boys. Wow. I don't know. It was only like 13. Only 13? That they know of. It was only 13. Only 13. He was such a good coach. Um, and the trapped miners in Chile were rescued. This is going to be a total guess because all of those things happened so close to each other. Um, let me think. Okay, so I'm going to go with Obama signing the health care bill. 
It was his landmark legislation. I don't think that happened until his second term. That would have been his first term. Yeah, that that was my first guess because I felt like 2010 that would have been too was early. too long ago. Yeah, that was really early. So th- that's that's my guess as well. Well, the Jerry Sandusky happened in 2012. What? Dang. So it's been seven years since wow. they signed the health care bill? Yeah. Signed in 2010. That. See, that's what happens when you get into your 40s. I had to check because I didn't believe it either. I'm not in my 40s, but I feel like it most days. Am I right? <laughs> me too. Yeah. Me too, me too, me too. So. I like uh, that one thing before you get started, Jimmy. Yeah. I love that you brought up the other Academy Award winner. Did he win the Academy Award mm-hmm. for, the wrestler? for the wrestler? For the wrestler. Because I watched the wrestler last night again. Yeah, and you've mentioned the wrestler. Yeah, it's great. my favorite Darren Aronofsky film. It's a great movie. And so, you know, I watched it just to, you know, immerse myself in a little bit of Aronofskyism, and then I rewatched Black Swan. So, yeah, the wrestler is really good. It and he he did do fantastic in that movie. I don't have any like beef with uh, Mickey Rourke. But it's really funny when you started hearing people rave about the movie and they were like, Mickey Rourke was born for this role. And that's that's not a great compliment. That's not a compliment. <laughs> well, it's not. <laughs> it's like when Charlie Theron was in Monster and they're like, oh, she was born for this role. I don't think anybody said that, though, because they had to like purposely make her ugly for that. Yeah. They made her that gain was, weight was and shave her eyebrows. Like, how can we make this beautiful South African supermodel believable as like trailer trash? You make her gain 45 pounds and then you shave her eyebrows off. So I wouldn't say she was born for it. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily a compliment. I don't know if it's it needs to be. I think that there is some truth in it. I mean, just if you look at his career yes, and how he was the next guy, you know, he was supposed to be the... the ne- I mean, he was extremely talented, extremely handsome, charisma oozing out of him, uh, and he was doing some, you know, very interesting roles like Angel Heart, and nine and a half weeks, and he was going to be this thing. And then, for whatever series of events that happened, he kind of lost it. And then was it drugs? Yeah, you know, isn't I mean, it, it, isn't it always drugs. Thing. You know, it was he a turned mail- down bad roles. He was very outspoken. He said things that he shouldn't have said. He said like Marlboro Man and the Harley Davidson. Was it Harley Davidson Man? Yeah, it was Marlboro Man. No, Marlboro yeah. Man and Harley Davidson. Yeah, something like that. And he was in an interview, and he just said he did it for the money. And oh, he, he bit the he hand was, that feeds. Yeah, he was trying to. Mm-hmm, he was supposed mm-hmm, to be promoting mm-hmm. it, but but I think I'm that he. I, I feel like he. I feel like he l- took the role f- because he saw himself in it. You know, yeah. and I think that, and he knows it's not a compliment, but it is also an amazing opportunity when you see a chance to not only uh, maybe re- revive your career, find a role that's challenging anyway, mm-hmm. and then also see yourself paralleled in it. I think that's awesome, and I think he probably um you know was very excited from what i understand he like you know like reached out and like went and sat down with aronofsky and like had Mm -hmm. coffee a bunch of times and talked to him about i don't know how much of this is urban legend but you know and just talked to him about how much he wanted it because of those things well i you said the word parallel and i remember that when this movie came out and and it started to do well and it got a lot of critical acclaim and was far more successful than they ever expected it to be like in theaters because it was this kind of weird indie art house movie. People were like, what is this about? And they kept saying like, this is kind of a parallel to Mickey Rourke's life. Like here's this down and out actor. Here's this down and out wrestler washed up. Desperately trying to stay relevant. Yeah. Insert your choice of adjective. And, and he did a really great job. And then after shortly after the wrestler, he did Iron Man two, which is like a way to redeem. Your, so it was a redemption story. And it was, uh, 
I remember that movie being way more emotional than I had anticipated it to be. And I'm I'm a crier in movies. And there was several times where I was like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, I was blown away. Somebody who doesn't know Mickey Rourke's career well, I was not the target audience of a Mickey Rourke movie all my life. Yeah. I don't know what Marvel Wrong demographic. Yeah, wrong, wrong demographic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it, it, that made me realize, like, wow, this was a really, what, what a talented person. Like, I, I believed everything and I was emotional and... And it was nice to see him end up on top. Yeah, I mean, I think it was well-deserved recognition. You know, it's always an objective thing, like who deserves the best actor or whatever each year. There's tons of great acting every year. But he certainly deserved the recognition. Yeah. Um, it, it was an awesome role. And it's one of my favorite films. It's definitely my favorite Aronofsky film and one of my favorite films because I love movies about regular people. Mm-hmm. And he was just a regular dude. You know, and that's what I loved about the characters that even though you saw this desperately trying to stay relevant, that's a great way of putting it. He, he was like a star in this era that was a fleeting time mm-hmm. in history. It wasn't mm-hmm. going to stay forever. You know, the whole wrestling thing was this phenomenon. And when it was happening, he was on top of the world. And when it became completely irrelevant, he and a lot of other people and the film depicted this well too, like when they were at those weird, like, book signings and there were the other washed up guys and like so he wasn't the only one right that's what got me emotional was the compassion for the everyday oh man it like breaks my heart and every time there was a lot of heartbreaking scenes there was and in whatever movie like if it's a regular person who's just like it's like trying to get by man Mm -hmm. i'm like oh and you do like cheer for him the the whole time despite immeasurable amounts of mistakes makes me so sad Man, now yep. I want to talk about the wrestler. Yeah, and the parallel, and yeah, we should move on to Black Swan or Segway somehow. But the parallel of how his passion was fleeting, and what Marissa Tomei had was also fleeting. Like she was an aging stripper. Yeah, and she was going through the same thing he was mm-hmm. going through. Like you know, the younger guys in the mm-hmm. the younger guys in the you know the champagne room that are like no, wanting her, want no thanks because you're like old. You're the no, same age you. as my mom, and yeah. you know whatever. And then like she was just like feeling that same thing, and that's why they were just like soulmates. Yeah, and it's just a great movie about regular people. And, it was so good, you know. And and I think that it also had humor. What I loved is that you got to see behind the curtain of the pro wrestling thing, oh and how all the pro wrestlers don't take themselves seriously, mm-hmm. and they're having a good time, and they realize that it, that they're just like doing a show. It's a Broadway show, and like they all mm-hmm. have fun in the back room and joke around. And I loved seeing that, and it and it you know it gave the film it gave this tragic film a lighthearted side. You You've know, so I laughed kind of I laughed it. through it a lot mm-hmm. at, at the parodying of the of the wrestlers and how how they were you know wrestlers behind the curtain are having a pretty good time with each other Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like it's this awesome fun sort of broadway show you know and then they they just get to go and have a beer after it's over you know and i just think that was a really cool sort of um uh peek behind the curtain and i'll segue to black swan how about that here's a segue one of the things about black swan is it's a very deliberate peek behind the curtain into the performing arts world specifically the dance world and the ballet to get even more specific I spent a lot of time in the dance world in Chicago, not only working, um, you know, as tech and stage managing types of roles, but um, once my brother and I started our production company, um, we leveraged a lot of the artistic directors and a lot of the dance companies that we used to work for, for our first work, like shooting their shows on the weekend and mm-hmm. putting them on DVDs, which 
back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that's a commodity for a dance company because they can use, when they have it on DVD and they can show the rep to new dance members and sort of teach rep and they like to archive all that stuff. So we did a lot of that. So I loved that it was a peek behind the curtain into the dance world. I think it was a very accurate one. I've been in those hallways and those in the wings of those stages and have been, you know, friends and formed a lot of personal relationships with people in that world, both from the production side, but also the talent side. And, you know, there were a lot of accurate isms that -hmm. were portrayed in that film. And so that was one of the aspects that I enjoyed about it. So for full disclosure, I, I love this movie. This is one of my all time favorites. And part of that is because of the ballet world. It's something that's been, I've just found fascinating and, you know, doing theater and dance and all those things growing up, never to the level anywhere nearly comparable to, to what these women go through. But it's something that's fascinating to me. So, I mean, anytime there's a dance movie that comes out, I typically watch it. Uh, and other than like the red shoes, there hasn't really been a serious movie about ballet or dance that's not kind of laughable. Like, I mean, I, I like center stage too, but like it's a different kind of enjoyment than this experience. So when I heard that Aronofsky was doing a movie about the world of ballet and it had Natalie Portman in it, I was like, oh, are you serious? Like, what? And I was already really excited about it. And I I think that this movie touches on the competitiveness, sort of the darkness of the world of professional ballet and really any kind of professional dance company because it really is a cutthroat world. I mean, you could say that about most of the world of the art artistic world, you know, whether it's theater or Broadway or even film, I guess. But dancers are ballet dancers in particular sacrifice their whole lives. I mean, they work their whole lives to get to the point where they have a career and then it's over when you're too old and it's over unless Mm -hmm. you're Margaret Fontaine and it's over. Yeah. And they mentioned her name in, in the movie too, but it's, so I was really excited from the get go and I love this movie and I, this is my favorite Aronofsky movie and it's one of my all time favorites. So I've seen this movie probably more, more times than I should admit. And the first time that I saw it in theaters, I, I was so excited and one of the things that I loved about this movie from the get-go was its trailers. The trailers for this movie didn't give away too much, which is one of my pet peeves of common movie trailers, is they show you the entire movie in 10-second clips. And it's like, okay, save some of the good stuff for when I pay money to go see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, can and you I save like some of really... the shiny stuff? Like, make this new for me when I'm there. And this movie marketed itself in such a genius way because it was the whole time it was like, okay, so what? What? what is this movie? Is this a thriller? Like, I remember specifically in the teaser, so it shows some clips and it's like from acclaimed director Darren Aronofsky, Academy Award nominee Natalie Portman and kind of touts the like critical acclaim behind it. And then at the end, she pulls the feather out of her shoulder and you're like, what the fuck? What is this movie about? Does she turn into a bird? Is it a thriller? Is it scary? Is it about dancers? Like, what on earth is this movie even about? And I loved the mystery surrounding it because they mm-hmm. never really address it. And even it's in like the final cut trailer, it did not give away too much. So when you walked into this movie, it was really surprising. And the first viewing was the best word that I can describe it is jarring because it's, it takes you by surprise. It was spookier than I thought it would be. Like jump scares. There's sometimes that like, the whole audience just like like kind of jolts out of their seat because there's a variety of times where it's freaky. It's really uncomfortable too. There's lots of uncomfortable moments, and I left it thinking like, "Whoa, oh my, okay, like I gotta watch that again" because there was a lot that I know that I missed. And that's one of the things that I love so much about this movie is there are so many layers to it and so many different things that happen in it, and there's so much detail involved, and there are so many different ways that people have interpreted this movie over the years. You know, at, at first glance, like, here's the story of a ballerina who suffers a nervous breakdown because of the pressure. 
or or something that affects a mentally ill ballerina can't handle it or so, mm-hmm. something like that. The IMDb synopsis, whatever. But then if you when you watch it again or a couple times, you realize okay that this movie is really multifaceted and there's a lot to it. And that's what I love so much about it is over the times that I've watched it, I've picked up more and more. The plot is a ballerina having a nervous breakdown. When I watched it a second time, what I got out of it was that Natalie Portman's entire character, I think, was a symbol of that entire industry. The intense competitiveness, the intense fragility. You can go from being on top to literally the next day with one false move, lose it all to someone else. And I think she was supposed, I think the film was using her as this, like, I don't know if allegory is the right term, but a microcosm to represent, like, the way everyone in that industry feels, certainly Mm -hmm. on the talent side. Because she was just miserable the whole time. She was miserable the entire time. And even in the moments where she laughed, it was because she was on the drug or whatever that, what's her name, slipped in her drink, and it was only, like, a nervous laugh at that. I mean, she was literally on the edge of nervous breakdown and ultra anxiety, like institutionalized amount of anxiety the entire time. And the Mila Kunis character was like the complete alter ego to that. Like she mm-hmm. just didn't care. And she was always just joking around. And, and you don't see that person in that world. Ballerinas are never, they're a force, never that laid back about anything because they can't be i mean i think it explored a lot i mean it's a beautiful amazing art form that behind it all this is what the film is saying obviously i don't speak for it but to me the film was saying this is an amazingly beautiful art form and piece of culture but the people that do it behind the curtain are most of the time scared and miserable that they're going to lose their job and they know that they have a half-life of like five years. And I think it, it must be it must be one of the most gratifying and stressful careers that you could ever have. I agree to an extent because I think that more of what this movie explores with the characters and the themes that they do is, in addition to the competitiveness of the dance world and the intensity of it, I think that the character of Nina, Natalie Portman, and the character of... Oh, what's her name? Lily. Is Lily. Her name. Lily. Her her friend uh, Mila Kunis's character is more of an exploration of coming into adulthood for Nina specifically, and the exploration of her sexuality. And sexuality is kind of a a deep undertone, and then sometimes it's it's what they're explicitly talking about. You know, with Tamar, the director of the ballet, and he asks her some some really uncomfortable questions that she clearly does not have an answer to. Like, do you have a boyfriend? Like, do you sex. enjoy do, do you, you like enjoy it? sex? Yeah. Like, oh, okay, awkward. And she obviously like. It was a beautiful performance by Natalie Portman of just trying to like save face. Okay, clearly this girl's a virgin because she's got a really warped relationship with her mother in terms of her privacy. Like, when would this girl have ever had the chance to have sex? You know, probably never. She still sleeps in this weirdly infantilizing bedroom with pink butterflies and stuffed animals. And she sleeps in little pink cotton panties with like little, little delicate ridges. Not the underwear that a 20, they never say her age specifically, but you would guess maybe between like 20. 21 and 25 ish. It's her mom was 28 years old when she had her and made the mistake of having her Mm -hmm. rough. Right. But so she's in her early twenties and that the case of many Western civilization women, you know, Western Europe, America, 
a lot of the time it's kind of the sexual revolution of, of a woman. And when she is out on her own, you know, maybe you're in college or you're in the working world and, and you're on your own, essentially. You're on your own and you can be your own self. And Nina's never had that. She's lived with her mom and she lives in this very childlike bedroom. Her mom puts her to bed every night and she turns on her music box and she like brushes her hair and she undresses her from that big ball. It's a really weird relationship with her mom. So Nina's never had the chance to grow up and suddenly this pressure of this role, she has to play the role of the swan queen, the black swan and the white swan, where the white swan represents fragility, virginity, humility. She's a scared, shy little swan. She is the the white swan. She is the white swan. That's what he tells her. You're the white swan, but I don't think you can be the black swan. Tomah tells her that. And and she can't because she's never has been. She's not a well-rounded human being. She's never really been out on her own. And Lily represents the black swan. Like, here's this carefree girl who's like, you know, she takes her underwear off in a bathroom with Nina and like, just kind of like wants to be her friend. She's just like cool chick who like wants to eat burgers and talk about dudes. And Nina can't contribute to that because she's so not developed. And so I think the story is more than anything, the exploration of, of a girl trying to grow up who can't quite do that for a variety of reasons. And the exploration of, of a woman's sexuality that's been like stumped. Like she can't get past Stunt, it. Stunted. Stunted. Yeah, yes, she's a stunted sexuality. This, like, time capsule. There's a couple of scenes that got a lot of buzz because of its, because of the sexuality. Uh, one of them being the scene where Nina tries to touch herself as her homework. And it's so, I found that scene so weird to watch, even the first time, because behind Nina is all of her stuffed animals, and she's wearing her little pink cotton panties, and then she's in this bed that has, like, butterfly sheets. It's a 10-year-old's bedroom. It is, and she's never been allowed to grow past that. So she reaches her breaking point. It never, never can. I mean, you could argue that she never does. Or when she finally does, that's, she's released by death. She's released from this prison of her childlike upbringing and her infantilized life. And she only can escape that when she finally dies. And that, I would argue, is probably what is the heart of this story because so much of it is driven by Nina and her, her total, total shelteredness. The last word of the film, I think, is the main theme. Perfect. Perfection, because yeah. that's what this world is about, and that's why it's so stressful, because yeah. there's no such thing as perfection. And you can see it, you know, in that world, in the performing arts world, perfection is what you strive for, and there are glimpses of it, and it's almost worse than not having a glimpse of it, because mm-hmm. when you get a glimpse of it, it seems attainable, but it's not, right? And so I agree that it, it, that the film explored all those things. So it, of course it did. I mean, the bedroom, it was one of the most like direct, like, look at like this symbol, like production, like symbolism animals. and metaphor through, through production yeah. design. Like, yeah, she's got a lot of these stuffed animals and her bed is like the bed of a 10 year old princess and like, little it's a, gir- a little girl's room, mm-hmm. you know? And then there's that whole scene where she stuffs all the stuffed animals down the garbage dump, you know, which was obviously like a, the film had so much deliberateness to it. Oh yeah. And you know, it was like every scene has mirrors and because in the, this world you stare, you look at yourself in the mirror all the time because it's a reflection of, of are you living up to the standards? And so everybody was in mirrors all the time and, and it was very deliberate. He wasn't trying to be subtly symbolic at all. No. Um, but I think that speaks to what that in, what that world is like. It is very deliberate and it's very out in the open. Like you're either perfect or we're moving on to the next person. Mm-hmm. And it's that cutthroat, right? So the whole film, I think, was a very overt peek behind the curtain of that world. Certainly it was more about this person and the, the nervous breakdown that she ends up having and, and these 
dreams and nightmares and all of her hallucinations was about that ultimately. But through that, we get this glimpse into a world and the filmmakers were being very overt about, Hey, this world's tough. You know, it did not paint a flattering picture of being a ballerina (laughs) and living in that world. And I wonder how that's taken. You know, I know a lot of, a lot of my friends from, uh, the performing arts world, some like dancers, they love that film. And I, I under, I get why they love it, but I've asked a lot of them. I'm like, was it a struggle to watch something that really painted a very unflattering picture of the world that you live in? Like it, it made it out to be a very sinister world mm-hmm. full of politics. And, you know, Winona Ryder's character was the symbol of like what you're going to eventually be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. matter how great you are today. You're going to be her soon. You know, it was very straightforward about that. And, you know, what was it like to be a ballerina and watch that movie? <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, seriously, because it, it was criticizing that world pretty harshly. Did, and you said that they, they love that movie. The, the people that you know, at the least. people that I know do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm speaking for maybe two people, but one of my friends, he, he loves Aronofsky anyway. He's mm-hmm. a dancer and then all dancers have a, another career, you know, photography. You know, mm-hmm. he's moving into the <laughs> filmmaking world. So he loves Aronofsky. He, lo- he did anyway. And then when Black Swan came out, it was like a double whammy for him because yeah. he loves Aronofsky. He's a budding filmmaker. He's also a dancer. And so the film was, he loves it. Yeah, he had some very strong things to say. He's like, yeah, it showed some really, really tough situations that, that do exist. But it's not every day. I mean, obviously, you go, people go into that career and have successful careers and, right. and have very fulfilling careers. But it is tough. And I think the film made no bones about how ugly it can get sometimes the one thing about the tomal character is the first time i saw the film i thought he was the villain and to your point about when he's like telling her to do the homework you know i thought it was like you look at it as like the sexual harassment thing right but when i watched the film the second time i really felt like he was not the villain at all and i think that his intentions were honest and not that they're not creepy and weird but I think he was so dedicated to his version of Black Swan. And once he cast the person that he cast, he was going to do anything that he could to make sure the audience got to see the version that he wanted. And Natalie Portman, because she had such a hard time being the Black Swan, he was trying to make her be the Black Swan. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to sleep with her. He wasn't trying to sexually harass her. He was challenging her. And that's why I see it. Right. right. That, again, not that it's not creepy and he like forces his to kiss her a couple of times. Open, open your it, mouth. Open right. It. But those were exercises in making her because he's like, I seduced you. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You got to mm-hmm. seduce me. And he was right? completely right. That point where he says you're trying to reach perfection and so much of perfection is losing control is not being perfect. Right. And then at the end, when she did, when she was amazing in the second act, the black she swan act, she runs him. up and seduces him. And to me, that's the moment when the film was saying, okay, she actually now understands that he was only trying to help her. And maybe in American standards, you know, that's a little not the right way to do it. But it worked. And she was saying, thanks for pushing me. That's a very controversial statement. That's one of the things I think the film is saying, could it be that? Could that be what it is. is she thanking him? I think that that could be the case if there was not the first 
one-on-one interaction with Nina and Toma, where she goes in to talk to him about the fact that she finished the coda, and he tells her, well, I've already picked Veronica, and she says, But he okay. li- but that's a lie. Okay, though. and she walks out, and he says, well, you're not going to try and change my mind. Uh, okay, what, what, do you, what do you mean? And then he kisses her, and she bites him. And that's when he chooses her. And he's, he says to her in their first rehearsal as the white swan, be prepared to show me more of that bite. Yep. And if that didn't happen, then I would agree with what you just said, that maybe he was just trying to bring out the black swan in her. I joked with Jimmy earlier that he kind of feels like the Harvey Weinstein of the ballet world and the way that he treated Nina, especially in the beginning. Well, you're not going to try and change my mind. But I how take exactly, that as sexual, though. Well, how, is Nina, how exactly is Nina going to try and change his mind? I think, I think he was he pushing her. her to fight for it. Well, okay, but yes, you can fight for it and change, try and change the director's mind. Like, no, I can do it. I finished the coda. She tells him, I finished the coda. I'm able to do, I'm able to do that. O- okay, well, I've already chosen, I've already chosen Veronica. But that was okay, a, I think, but that was a mind trick, right? I and think I think, so too. and I think in, in, in that world, what the film is saying is that to get to the right swan queen, you have to, uh, use those types of tactics. So, and again, I'm making no commentary on whether they're right or wrong. I'm not right. qualifying them. But I, I definitely think once she ran up and like kissed him hard after the second act, I saw it as like, oh, now she's like actually thanking him for like using all those crazy tactics, out of the box tactics, for lack of a better term. I saw that to as get her to, to the get her to the to the place. Um the only thing that I will say that made me question that is that Winona Ryder's character in in some of those scenes where she like makes a spectacle in public did really, really make it seem like she was sleeping with him back in the day. Because up until that point, he, you know, he asked Nina over to his house like, after the gala. Mm-hmm. And you're just like thinking that that's just creepy and, mm-hmm. and like he's just going to take advantage of her. And then when they get there, he doesn't. He just gives her the homework assignment. I mean, yeah, it's all sexual innuendo, but he never, he never made a move on her. He's just like, all right, go home, get some sleep. My mind was changed on him when I watched that character when I watched it a second time. And again, the whole film, there's a lot of accurate personifications that are in that world. But I just think the film made me question whether he's a, whether he's a bad guy. I feel like if Darren Aronofsky was sitting in the fourth chair, he would be loving the conversation. Because I think everything that's been mentioned can be chalked up to a lot of the decision-making that he did, uh, Darren Aronofsky. His first two feature lengths were Pi and Requiem for a Dream, and those are very surface-level disturbing. You don't have to pick the movie apart to get really weird vibes. And then he did The Wrestler, and I remember, because I loved both of Requiem and Pi, and then he did The Wrestler, and I was like, all right, that's a strange artistic choice. And then he did Black Swan, which I thought was really strange, and I think that there was probably some motivation to like smash some cliches and and stereotypes of what we might think about the ballet world but i mean he did wrestler and mickey Rourke won best actor he did black swan and natalie portman won best actor which i think is to her praise for sure not to take away from it but you mentioned that the mental illness i think one of the the character choices that natalie portman made is that she has underlying mental illness before our story begins. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. She's a self-harmer. And, and they barely touch on it. There's one line where her mom says, are you scratching again? And then everything after that, we kind of think it's like the beginning of all of this. You know, like, so when she starts to have these hallucinations, we're not told most of the time whether this actually happened or not. And so I think that's sort of 
his way of putting us in the shoes of somebody who might have some sort of mental illness where like, we don't know if it's real or not. We know about as much as the main character. Little things like, did Beth really stab herself in the cheek? We don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's not really relevant to the story. So one more thing though. Yeah. I think that from my commentary earlier about the Tamal character, certainly those are hard tactics to accept even if he was coming from a place where it was only for the good of the show. Mm-hmm. And for a guy, it's probably easier to like analyze it that way. For a woman, it's probably different. Because it, yeah. because he, because on, on the surface, it's sexual harassment straight up. Right. right. There's no way around it. Just when you dig deeper, you know, and then when the movie plays out and she kisses him, that's a deduction that I came to that is that one of the intentions of the filmmakers to say like, oh, she was like thanking him for challenging her, even though it was creepy and... And borderline sexual harassment. You know what I mean? I think we just... It's clearly two different perspectives. but And I certainly don't speak for uh, women everywhere when I say this. But watching it from Nina's... The point of view of Nina. There are several comments made throughout the movie that Toma has a reputation right. for things. Her mom says, his, well, did he try anything with yeah, you? Yeah, his mom he, said that. Or he, her mom. She, yeah. He has a reputation. She says, no, he didn't. Which is a lie at this point because... He pretty much fingered her in her leotard, you know, without really without her consent. It's it's a very uncomfortable scene to watch. Like every scene in this movie is uncomfortable for different reasons. But the the, the start with the relationship with Toma is, you know, the first one on one interaction we see with them is where he asks her, I thought you were going to try to change my mind. And she kind of doesn't really know what to say. And she doesn't really know how to navigate the situation. And then they kiss and she bites him and she walks out. And so that from the start is weird. And you think, okay, well, well, why is the director kissing? Why is he trying to, what happened? You know, and I, I agree that the, the trope or the what happens commonly in the world of theater, and I would imagine in ballet is the director dates the, the lead actress or the producer dates the lead actress or someone in a position of power dates the lead, right? That's pretty common, both in the real world and in, and in story world. And the relationship with Toma is so uncomfortable to watch and it's uncomfortable on behalf of Nina and it's uncomfortable on behalf of Beth and that's Winona's character and the interaction that Beth has with Nina after the gala and he introduces Nina as the new swan queen and the new star of the company and says goodbye to Beth and Beth is clearly real salty about this whole experience and Beth comes up to Nina and she's kind of a drunk mess and she asks her did you suck his cock and she tells her not all of us have to and I love this weird little thing that they do, this little sound effect. Every time the black swan comes out in Nina, it kind of sounds like a snake sighing. It's like a... <sighs> Every time Nina gets mean or does something that's like the black swan, there's a sound effect that happens until she has her metamorphosis. It happens when she bites Toma, and it happens when she tells Beth, not all of us have to. And you're like, oh, damn, you girls are mean. And then there's, there's some words back and forth between them. There's the, the comments about my little princess, which is weird yeah yes. because it's, it goes back to the like that like underage girl sort of yes innuendo very like much her be- like her bedroom and but stuff beth like was the little princess she was beth my little princess he calls her that in front of like a room full of people at this gala and she's like okay bye that's when she leaves and then they have their words outside and then he invites her back to his apartment and you can kind of see in nina's face there's an apprehension and beth tells her he always said you were such a frigid little girl and asked, like, did you did you suck his cock? Like, is that why you got the part? So there's there's clearly some things that happen around Tomad that are not maybe professional or appropriate or, like, 
okay. I mean, perhaps he's trying to get Nina. That's part of his agenda is trying to get Nina to be to be the role of the black swan. But the the character of Tama is predatory. The way that I viewed this movie, he's the type of director who dates his leading lady, and then once she's no longer the leading lady, she's kind of in a point of despair. And so, like Beth walks in front of a car, she almost kills herself, you know, to try to 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 escape this this level of irrelevancy that she's reached now. And she's she it knows she knows that Nina's going to replace her. And that's why she's so aggressive towards Nina. And that's why she's so unhinged at the gala. And she drinks a lot. And Tomas says, like, you know, everything that Beth does comes from a place of darkness. But that's why she's so good. One of my favorite things about Beth as a side character is that the person that she has the most contempt for is the person that admires her the most. And I love the way that Nina idolizes Beth as her example of perfect or, like, what perfect looks like, you know, when she defends her multiple times through the movie but it's so interesting to see it from two completely different perspectives where one person is not wrong you don't see movies like that where not only do you not know the answer but there is no answer well i think nina's kiss too to to, to wrap that up i think that nina's kiss at the end where she kisses toma and she's like at this point has stabbed herself in the stomach and is probably just running on pure adrenaline and she runs up and kisses him I view that as an act of defiance, that nobody has ever run up to Toma and done that before. And everything that Toma has done has kind of been in the shadows. He has a reputation. I've heard that he does these things with his dancers, that kind of stuff. Toma's never, like, perhaps has never outwardly dated somebody. He called Beth his little princess. In and private. At one point, yeah, it's all a private kind of behind-the-scenes sort of weird affair type situation. And so when Nina runs up and kisses him, he has a look of surprise on his face. He's kind of like... See, and then he's got like a funny little smile that he does. You see, that's why I thought it wasn't defiance because I thought his reaction was that he succeeded in making her the black swan. That's how I saw it. Like I, as soon as she like ran back out on the stage, the camera just stays on him, and he has like this amazing look of content and uh, excitement surprised. on his face. It's still self-serving. Mm-hmm. His his smile is self-serving because it was like oh. Now I've made her seduce me. Now I've succeeded in making her the black swan. This is the way I saw it. The first time I saw it, the other way. More where you're going with it. But after I watched it again today, I was like, his motivations aren't to get this girl into bed. His motivations were to make his peace be seen in that visceral way. He had that soliloquy at the beginning when he first sees his character Strip for the first down, time. He's like, make it raw, he's like, we're gonna do, we're gonna do Swan Lake, and yeah, we've we've seen it a hundred times, but not my way. We're gonna make it visceral, and we're gonna strip it down. And his motivations were to make the audience witness the version that he wanted. And as soon as he got Natalie Portman to become the Black Swan, he got what he wanted. Don't think his motivations were ever to get her in bed. That's the way I perceived I it the second time I watched it. the added bonus. Lily, who is probably the most balanced character of them all, like maybe she does ecstasy occasionally or Molly, whatever. I, I thought it was X. She tells Nina, somebody's hot for teacher. And she's like, you don't understand. He's a genius. And she's like, yeah, he's a genius, but he's still a prick. Yeah. Like, and he, he will do anything that he needs to to get the, the result that he desires. I agree that like he'll, he'll at all costs, like he'll do it. That's but it. all in all in the service of making the peace that he wants to create. Sure. In my opinion, that's how I see it. Like, but then where is the line of ethics drawn? No, yeah, of course. And that's, not, the, it's that's complete, the point. And I think that that's yeah. The, well, in my opinion, he's gone over the line. Sure. Oh yeah. Like as an artist, you're gonna do what you gotta do 
to make your vision happen. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, you got to figure out a way to do it without taking advantage of other people and being uh, unsavory and sexual harassment. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He's got a different set of criteria, but he is an artist and he's trying to make his vision happen on the stage for the audience. He'll do anything it takes to do it. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of testing and there's a lot of manipulation that he does. And I, I think it's interesting that after she bites his lip, you know, if that would have been a story that you would read on the news, if that would have been something that happened in her life, the director would be embarrassed about it and he would probably try to bury that that situation ever happened. But the next day when they're all in the ballroom and he says, I want to see more of that bite, it tells me that he's not embarrassed. Maybe it didn't go the way he expected, but I think that, that he's trying to move her to action. But I did tell Anna earlier when I was rewatching this, I wanted to look at every little detail in his apartment just because he's a, he's a smarmy asshole for sure. Mm-hmm. And he's got, in his living room, a baby grand right next to a giant uh, piece of exercise equipment. Yep. And I'm like, hilarious. oh, of course you do. That is, I love, I laughed at that. It's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. He would. So one of, the, one of the controversies that I read, there's a couple, but one of them, uh, Blue Perfect. Did you, did you read about that? Have you ever heard of this? So there was uh, an anime film uh, from 97 that Darren Aronofsky bought the rights to long time ago. He was going to do a remake to this movie. And the Japanese director died. And so the similarities between Black Swan and Blue Perfect are frightening. Interesting. Well, so when, I heard of this. yeah, when you uh, asked me to do the podcast, I had responded and I said, well, I have, a, I have, a, I've always had a theory about Black Swan. And it's a, it's another movie that I, that I related to. Really? I think it's the, yeah, I think it's the, uh, for lack of a better way of, I guess, describing it, it's the female version of Fight Club. It is very, it is very Fight Club-ish. I mean, me, me, like Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman are Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mila Kunis, she's like an idealistic character. In the ballerina world, you can't be as laid back and okay with everything like she is. Yeah. Right? Like, it works in the film, but that's what, but it's idealized. Like, they're showing us this character that, like, she eats is, burgers and yeah, she's cheese eat, yeah, and she goes drinks. out and parties mm-hmm. and, and eats burgers. Like, she orders the burgers with extra cheese, and, like, she's a, she's a character that can exist in that world. Right. And is she real? Or yeah, is I she a figment? That, is she, I mean, the, I don't think the film is saying that she's a hallucination, but it certainly could be perceived that way. Yeah, it seems like pretty much from the start, Lily represents everything that Nina isn't and everything that Nina thinks that she should be just like embodies the polar opposite in every single form. And so some of those forms are a little unrealistic and as soon as you see the black wings you're like oh i get it mm-hmm. she's the white swan she's the black another swan. deliberate ha, ha, ha. another yeah, so like much no more professional dancer has a giant back tattoo like that i know that was a little bit right. silly that was yeah a, that was a silly artistic yeah touch. You, yeah no but yeah and it's just, like yeah you can't have a tattoo like that and be a ballerina no like you'll never get no cast right no, you'll never right never um yeah, and she's the Brad, she's the manifestation, of, like Edward Norton's Brad Pitt. You know, his Tyler Durden was this, you know, was everything he can't be and wishes he could be. Yeah, and in Nina's case, her worst fear, there's a competitiveness to Nina that she's kind of scared of Lily. 
that she can be so great and she can lose herself and she can be so cool and laid back and this amazing dancer who she's can, just so who fucking intimidated by everything by everything but by Lily she's a she's a lost little girl and then when, when Tom Mom makes Lily her understudy it's like oh okay she's for sure out to get me like for sure this girl's like for sure gonna try and kill me I really like this scene there's a lot of really subtle lines most of my favorite lines in the movie are from Barbara Hershey's character because her Erica. role and everything what a trip just the way that she paints this perfect picture of where she comes from and these resentments you know they mentioned briefly that her father Nina's father was a famous director and so you right away put mom's shoes just like going down Nina's path just like you said and she has these like you know it's part resentment it's part bitter it's part jealousy a lot of jealousy but she does kind of like sabotage nina and you know she cuts her fingernails with scissors so that she can have more control than like a pair of fingernail clippers and i just i loved watching uh, barbara hershey in this movie i mean it's it's like a it's a cross between fight club and mommy dearest <laughs> yeah it is no more wire hangers seriously i mean that that's where that's another thing that came out the second time i watched it Barbara Hershey was having some psychological problems of her own, <laughs> yeah. right? And passed them on to her daughter. Yeah, those were a lot of uncomfortable scenes. Again, more more commentary on just how um, intense that world is of just being perfectly manicured all the time. And, you know, she's throwing up. We get the idea what's going on there and just being protected, you know, it's almost like when you're a ballerina, you're this physical commodity, like a like livestock. You know, where the you where they protect you, and you're not allowed to do these things because it could, you know, put the whole show in jeopardy. And that's what puts the butts in the seats, and and you become like not even a person anymore, and you're just this commodity. Which I guess in any industry is true technically, but not to the level in worlds like this. I think sports are probably similar. Mm-hmm. You know. Dancers are athletes. I mean, that's what they are. Yes. They're artists and they're athletes at the same time. And they know that they have a clock. Yeah. It's and a very short a, time span. It's a thing, right? Just like the themes that uh, Mickey Rourke's character was going through in The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. His clock was up. When we come into his story, his clock's been up. Mm-hmm. And he's in, the, he's in the dark time. So everything that we've talked about has pretty much been story. We haven't even like explored the technical achievements of this movie. And I had no idea the motion capture and masking that was involved. And that was another one of the big controversies is that there was this ballerina who did most of the dancing and they superimposed Natalie Portman's face, which I kind of knew, but I learned that the producers had her basically sign a gag order and was not allowed to do any more interviews until after the Oscars. And the producers had talked to her um, and said, this looks bad for Natalie. You need to stop doing these interviews. And as soon as the gag order was up, she spoke up against the producers and, you know, said that she was used. And it's another one of those. You can see it from either side because you see the green screen and masking broken down and, I didn't even know that technology was like readily accessible in, in 2010 because it was a pretty small budget. It was like 16 million or something, but just all the 3D rendering and the blending, the practical effects, it was just, it was, it was stunning. The compositing of her black swan transformation was really cool. And I loved how you would see her 
transform at the very end. You would see the skin rash totally take over her body, and then they would show her from another angle, and there's nothing to kind of like bring you back from reality and remind you like you are following a girl who is mentally unstable. So don't think just because you saw her stab her friend that she really just stabbed her friend. Well, the skin rash, every time I watch the movie, I think I see something new and it's so fun. The skin, the little skin rash thing she's got in her shoulder. She's a self-harmer, we know. And it seems like scratching is her weapon of choice. Because her mom puts those mittens on her when she has, or socks on her hands when she has her like total mental breakdown and thinks she turns into a swan that night. That she also breaks her mom's fingers. But she, the, the skin thing on her back gets bigger and bigger the worse and worse she gets. And it's so, so subtle in some scenes, you know, there, there are scenes where you can see it and she makes herself bleed and like something's obviously going on. Like, are those little bumps there or are there just scratch marks from where she scratches herself? Like without even realizing what she's doing, or maybe she does it intentionally, but the scene where she is, uh, they're finally on the stage and it's the performance night and she has her scene as the white swan and she's getting ready. She puts powder to try to cover up the, the bumps that she sees, which I would guess that probably aren't there if you have if i had to wager i guess like those don't exist that she's just got some some things she's just scratching herself because she's losing it and she as she goes on and when he drops her you can see the rash starts to get bigger on her back and it starts to slowly spread down her arms and then after that scene she goes in and she thinks she kills lily but she really stabs herself and she's starting to turn into the black swan and she goes out there and she has that that moment where she dances the coda and she's amazing and she's like hypnotizing and she's looks incredible and her eyes are all red and weird and like we know something's happening with her because she's just stabbed something or someone in that room and we don't know who yet there's a scene where she turns and she like she the her hand comes in front of her face and she's seducing the the male dancer that's with her with her and you can see that the uh the rash is extending up her neck and it's starting to really and that's when she when she is eventually backstage in that same scene that's when the feathers start to to come out and she has she turns into the actual bird or she thinks she does on stage and some weird metamorphosis happens to her. But that, that subtlety with the rash all throughout the movie, I think if I watched it again and just paid attention to that part of her shoulder, I think the entire movie would really tell the story of like, this is how poorly she's doing right now mentally. Like it gets worse and worse. And every time she gets worse, you can see it on her back. Yeah. It flares up when she's at a, when she's at a pinnacle of breakdowns, it flares up. Yes. And then retracts back when she like maybe ebbs back. Yeah. The rash, and there were a couple of other things. They were like when she broke her toenail Ugh. that one time, and then like she had that, there was that one scene, and it was a hallucination, but she started peeling her skin. Yes. Her, her, she started peeling away I can't like even her, still her can't watch nails. that scene. You know, but. Oh, it, it makes me so you know, and I, I took a lot of that as that, um, you know, that was uh, the skin rash and the broken toenail, and like she broke her fi- one of her fingernails too. And, you know, I, I saw that as like kind of a metaphor that she was falling apart. Yeah, right. it literally looks like yeah. she's falling apart. Yeah, and yeah. like because she's mentally she's falling apart, and we're seeing that. And then her, you know, this all these the rash and the the rash is obviously all the right. stuff you're talking about too. It's like where the wings are starting to come out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you know all those things composited together are like this whole symbol symbolizing her falling apart, quite literally mentally, falling apart. And, yeah, and quite literally falling apart along with her mental state. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of like the costuming choices and. The, the makeup choices, hair and makeup in this movie, are one of my favorite things about it because it really does tell the story of a girl's descent into madness. You know, as a ballerina, she wears her hair back in, those, in, in a bun all the time. It's, it's pulled back tightly. And when Nina starts to, to let go or lose it, whether she's intentionally letting go or she's kind of losing her mind, her hair 
in a lot of scenes starts to come undone. So the scene where she throws away her stuffed animals in the garbage chute, it's in a ponytail, which is real rare. It's almost always her hair is back. Right. When she has the breakdown, when her mom tells her, stop telling me you're sorry. And she can't, she can't get that, that scene. She can't get that dance right. And he's like, just stop, stop being a fucking victim. Stop telling me you're sorry. And she cries. Her hair is down. Like her hair tells the story of where Nina is in relationship to the world around her. And usually it's back and in a bun. And when she's dancing, when she's like on the stage, it's always back and in the bun. But in her day-to-day life or in rehearsals, her hair tells the story, as does her, as does the costuming throughout the movie. And I think for a movie that had a very obvious tonal color palette between the, the, the grays, the white, the black, and the ballet pink, those are really the only colors that you pretty much ever see in this movie. Mm-hmm. And considering it's kind of a drab look, it's it could get really bleak. I mean, it looks bleak, but it, it would be very hard to differentiate if the people who did the costuming hadn't done such an amazing job. They, between the textures of the fabrics and the way that they told the story with color, it was incredible. And she wears a lot of white and a lot of ballet pink in the beginning because she's this like fragile, innocent, sort of doe-eyed little virgin. And as she starts to lose it, and even with her makeup, it tells the story too. Like there's the scene where she's warming up after she thinks she's had sex with Mila Kunis's character with Lily. And she's wearing a lot of eyeliner, which is weird because she doesn't, you know, you never see the character apply makeup. But mm-hmm. it's, it's just, I, I see it as a lot of eyeliner, but it's, it's subtle, I think, to the movie viewer. I, I tend to look at these things just at, like the makeup in movies anyway. And she's wearing eyeliner and her hair is in a ponytail, not a bun, and she's wearing gray. She's not wearing any white. And it's the first time in a long time that she's not wearing white. And she, you know, Lily has that spare black, like, lingerie-looking black tank top in her purse that she puts on when she's starting to get freaky and, like, lose it in the club scene. So her descent into her madness is told through her costuming choice as well. And it's just told in a really, really cool way. And the costuming people, I think her name was Amy Westcott and the designers of Rodarte deserve so much credit for the amazing costume pieces when you look at her, all of the ballerinas' uh, tutus, especially like the the actual performance tutus, they are like they are true, true works of art. Like they don't ever look like this in professional uh, ballet because it would be really it's not functional. You can tell that they, there's no way that a ballerina would be able to move like she would need to move in a professional, real environment. But they are so beautiful, and there's so much detail, and very obviously handcrafted. Every little thing was done by hand. And they're just amazing. So both as the black and the white swan. And they that's something I think that's overlooked in a movie that doesn't have a lot of like grand period piece costumes or like superhero things that get put together or like those loud action movies that have some really elaborate costume pieces. But this movie had some really, really amazing subtlety to it in their costuming choices and in makeup and in hair. It really does tell the story. It complements the story in a really beautiful way. I think that the costume pieces are on display somewhere. The tutus and a museum somewhere. And I would love museum. to see them for because sure. Because I'm sure that they are like incredible in person. They're amazing on the TV, but in person, I'm sure they're just stunning. Yeah, I, th- I mean, from an art perspective, production design perspective, and a technical perspective, to go back to a lot of the compositing and the CGI, this film is remarkable. The production design and the art isn't from a scope standpoint. It's small, but that's what it needs to be in, in this story. But nonetheless, just as successful as the art direction in, you know, Elizabeth, you know? Right. Because it was exactly what it needed to be, and it did all those things that you just said. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it just as amazing, right? I mean, the the pink accent is great. It's even in the hospital. 
the bed sheets and like the curtains in the hospital mm-hmm. are that light pink. That's never in a hospital. Right. You know, but it was in Winona Ryder's bed, like her hospital room. Yeah, because of course it would and, be. Uh, yeah, no, and it's her, it's her, you know, it's like, that's where your bed's going to be someday. Mm-hmm. Like that's foreshadowing yeah. for the Nina character, you know, like it'll still be pink, but it won't be your beautiful little 10 year old princess bed like it is in your room. Yeah. It's going to be a hospital bed, mm-hmm. you know, or the metaphor of what that hospital bed says and it'll, but it'll still be pink. And it was such a subtle pink. Yeah. I love it that it was, it was a like very muted hospital believable. Very pink, mu- well, all of it though. Even her room, it was pink, but it was a muted pink. It wasn't and surrounded hot pink. by flowers and it wasn't hot pink. Things, it might know? even be called that color of pink this this could be wrong. It might even be called I ballet mean, pink in the Pantone color world. Maybe it, it is. has a specific like that color of pink that tone. is is the ballet pink and it's I mean, I know in like in terms of like a nail polish, which I have many of, there are lots of like that color of pink is ballet pink or tutu pink or because muted because a more muted yes. subtle pink. Yeah, right. It might, it might be called. Uh, there is an allusion to it, I think, in the Pantone color universe, and they they carried it well into the movie because yeah. it's not it's not super obvious. Like I never noticed that her bed sheets in the hospital are pink. They're pink. That's interesting. That's well, which would would not be the case, but in this movie, it works. They're you know? ballet pink. Yeah, it's called yeah. ballerina in the Pantone color yeah. world. Um, the compositing and the special effects in this film are awesome. Right from the opening scene, when she's having the dream about being the swan queen. Yeah. The dancer morphs into the evil swan. Ralph Bart or, is his yeah, name. Which is incredible. But the film is quite an achievement. I mean, it's not a huge film in a scope from a scope standpoint. But it's a huge achievement, like from an art and technical standpoint. Yeah. yeah, I love when we watch movies like this and we're reminded that visual effects does not mean Godzilla and does not mean Transformers. Transformers but the visual effects are supposed to be an aid to help tell the story in ways that other things can't and the way that they would blend the practical effects of the costume with the CG. And just the whole idea that... If the visual effects house does their job exactly how they should be, you will never have known that they were there. Correct. Yep. And, I, yep. and I think that it is very distracting a lot. The the CGI or a movie that is relying on CGI. And I just, I love the idea of visual effects as a tool. That's the David Fincher in me talking, but it was great because you're not, you're not supposed to notice. Right. Like great editing. You don't notice the editing. That's oh, what makes it great. Speaking editing. of editing, the club scene. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I yeah. love the scene so much. And it wasn't seriously until like the third or fourth time that I'd watched this that I really started to pick up a lot of the images in it. When they're both rolling, Lily and, and Nina, and they're, they're dancing in the club. It's, there's a lot of people on the internet have done this where they've broken down frame by frame the different pictures that you see and the images that you see and what's hidden in there. And it's so cool. Like that's something I, that I kind of, you kind of glimpse on first viewing. I think that this movie is without a doubt something you need to watch at least twice because there's so much that you miss the first time because you're just kind of focused on like, okay, like what, what the fuck is even happening? Like is a girl turning into a bird or like did that picture's eye, like did the eyes move? Like what's happening? Cause it's also, there's some jump scares too. There's a couple scenes that like always make me jump even though I know that they're coming. But when you watch it the second time, the subtle stuff comes out and the club scene is always my favorite one because in that one minute long clip of the two of them just dancing together, you see Nina as the swan. You see the butterflies from her wallpaper. You see her mom. You see Rothbart. You see all kinds of stuff hidden in there. You see Lily as the swan. Like it's crazy. 
And that's all, it happens in the blink of an eye, but some very savvy people on the internet have, have actually stopped frame by frame and pointed out every little image that happens in that. And it's a really cool because that's, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to have to edit something like that. But I thought it was a, a lot so of it might cool. have been composited in two, but I mean, it, but it's perfect because it's form following function because it's not just doing it to be a cool visual, like from a gratuitous standpoint. They're rolling. So yeah. it's, it's them hallucinating on ecstasy or whatever it You're is they were on. Everything that Nina is probably seeing. Correct. Mm-hmm. So from a editor standpoint, would you imagine that most of those strobe lights were added? post-production or do you think there were like some minor strobe lights for markers in the scene that we're talking about in the club yeah i think it's a combination of both yeah i watched it today i think i think it's a combination of both i think in post i think they did like do some frame dropout you know going to black and coming back Mm -hmm. um but i think that a lot of that a lot of the strobing was also in in camera as well Mm -hmm. i think they probably heightened it in the post because it'd be a great way to cheat at it yeah, because every you, other frame you can is strobe black. it, and you can totally strobe it in post. I don't know if we'll get together for a Halloween episode. I would love to. If we did, what would you recommend us doing for a Halloween episode? Ooh, that's a good question. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's let's see if I can come up with a couple of ideas. Uh, the most obvious would be the very first Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not the person to ask. <laughs> I don't do I don't do those kinds of movies. Well, you are more now. Only, only during the month of October do I enjoy mm. that experience. And otherwise, I'm like, don't, don't, don't stress me out. I don't, I don't like it when they like stress me out. Yeah, this time last year I was attempting that 30 days of horror, where you <laughs> yeah. watch one horror movie every, every day in day. October. But if you skip a day, you have to make up for it the next day. Yeah. I like eight days in. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. This shit is stressing me out. I would get my suggestion would be uh, one of the more classic horror films like Rosemary's Baby or Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Really, any any they they start to feel like they're being lost. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, that those were like the pinnacle of horror, right? Like then I wasn't a kid I, that that long ago, and so on a slumber party, this is forever scarred me for life. We decided as what were like ten to watch Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, and The Exorcist. I don't think any of us slept for like a week. It like screwed us up for a while. And to this day, I remember how freaked out I was during Rosemary's Baby. And they, they feel like they're being lost a little bit because horror is something that happens a lot now. Like there's a lot of really great horror movies that come out or at least feels that way. I work with a lot of young people and they don't know. They're like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I like The Conjuring. And I was like, oh. uh, no, here's a suggestion. And it's uh, Barbara Hershey's in it. Ooh, Beaches. No. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, that's a horror movie of its own. That's true. Um, the entity. Has Ooh. anybody ever seen the no. entity? No, is that from the seventies? I've heard of it. It's early eighty, early eighties, okay. I think. But it's Barbara Hershey. Um, she's still very young in it. Obviously, it is a very, very scary movie. Is it one of those like PG scaries? No. Well, it's not PG because the plot is based on a true story. You know, the film is obviously mm. saying no one really knows what was going on with this woman, but this is the case, and here's how we're showing it in a film. So Barbara Hershey's character is being like visited, haunted by this like force, and it does a lot of things to her, um, along with raping her. Ooh, yeah, ooh. it's like really, really creepy. And eighties dark. It's, it's incubus. It's Incubus. dark, but it's based on a true story, and it soundtrack I mean, I, by Incubus. And I saw it. You know, I saw it when I was t- way too young. It scared the 
living crap Those out are always of the best horror movies, the ones you saw way too young. You know, and then I watched it again years later, like when I was like 30, and it's, yeah, it's a pretty scary movie. Does it hold up? It holds up. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to, you have to embrace it. Um, I can't believe you haven't scared. seen this. It, it's, I know. it's interesting, but there's a science behind it. Like these scientists like take her case on and try to like isolate the entity itself and try to ca- like a real and try to element. capture it. I mean, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a non-comedy Ghostbusters where oh. they try to capture it. It's like the new Ghostbusters. Not, it's not posi- right because it's not possession like The Exorcist. She's being haunted by it, right, mm-hmm. and taken advantage of by it. It's not possessing her internally. That's a, a different spin because it's always about possession, right? This and this is about like a spirit that like just takes advantage of her and like. How have they not uh, remade this? That sounds awesome. It does. Yeah, they should remake it, but it's a no, great. Don't give them any ideas. It's a great. I mean, what it's am a, I gonna remake? It's it? a tour. <laughs> de, it's a tour de force performance by Barbara Hershey. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, there you go. I, love I can't believe you've never seen it. Amazing. Ask me that tomorrow. I might not. A, might not be the case anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's about it for us. You can hear our other episodes at soundcloud.com slash movie show theater we're also on itunes and you can find us every other week we release new episodes you can check out our facebook page uh i put some show notes up on the facebook page about uh different scene analysis of uh, a couple of my favorite black swan scenes Corey, thanks for coming back uh, thank you, and as, as always, uh, I have to give a shout-out to my ma who listens to this on the radio in the great Peoria, Illinois. And one last thing, go Cubs. Excellent. Do you have any messages, my uh, sweet wife? No, I, I, no shout-outs or anything sweet. I don't think my mom knows what a podcast is. Thanks for having me back, and thanks for letting me choose this movie. Thanks for choosing this movie. Uh, I watched it again, and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Uh, I bought it. I love Darren Aronofsky. Watched it, and I was like, eh, put it on the shelf. But I pulled it out today to rewatch it for this episode, and I was glad it did. It's a great film. Oh, yeah. So until next time, I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Anna. And this is Corey Gilbert. And you've been listening to Movie Show Theater. Theater.